author for the very first time. Now, over the next about nine chapters or so, from chapter 3 of the book of Joshua to chapter um, 12, what we find there is just all the different campaigns, all the military campaigns that take place between Israel and the inhabitants of Canaan. When we get to chapter 13, uh, we find out that almost the bulk of all of the fighting has been done. There's still some more to do, as we'll see in just a minute, but the bulk of it has been done. The, the backs of the Canaanites, for the most part, have been broken, and, and, and so now uh, Joshua, as he's looking at his impending death, he knows he's about to die, he begins to split up the spoils of their war now in, in their battles. Now, what I mean by that is this. He takes the 12 tribes, this happens at the end of Joshua, and what he begins to do is he begins to divide up the land and begins to give the land to each one of those tribes, their particular portion. So the last part of the book of Joshua just lays out all those specific details for us. Now, when we begin in the book of Judges, what we find is we pick up where we left off. What we find is now the tribes are going to begin to lay hold of the pieces of land that were ascribed to them uh, by Joshua. And so that's what we find in the first couple chapters. This land is theirs, by the way. It was given to them by God, but now they have to work out that promise in their own life and lay hold of what it is that God has reserved for them. So here's what we're going to do. This week, next week, possibly a third week, we're going to be going through the first two chapters of this book, and we're using it as introductory material to help us to understand what heart condition the children of Israel were experiencing at this time. And what we're going to find is, is, is from the beginning, not today, but next week, we're going to find out their hearts aren't good. It's not going well. Today, we're just going to talk about how good God is, and then we're going to see how they were not so good. And then after that, when we get to chapter 3, we're going to spend some time not going through every single one of them, but begin to talk about the different judges that God raised up to rescue his people because of their sin. Got that? So today, look, we're just going to look through a good portion of chapter 1. So I need you, your, your minds. Are, are you all with me this morning? Okay, you got your mind, your brains on? Okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look through the first portion that I read in the beginning of the book of Judges. And as you saw, how many would admit it's a mess? I mean, there's stuff going on everywhere, right? There's all these different stories. There's, there's people, we can't even pronounce their names. There's cities we've never even heard of. People are conquering things. People are going places. All this crazy stuff is going on. Let me tell you this. It took me two weeks to really come to some kind of understanding of what this text is. And I pray by the grace of God I got it right but I'm gonna to try to stick to the text as much as possible. Here's what I have found in this text. Whenever you get to a text like this, give you a little bit of how you interpret scripture. When you get to a narrative, an Old Testament narrative like this, it's not as though you dissect it like you do the book of James, where every line you're dissecting it. What you do is you go to it and the story is the point. The story contains the point that God wants us to know, but here's what he mostly wants us to know. He wants us to know about him. So what we are asking ourselves is, what does all these events tell us about God? And I'm going to give it to you here in a nutshell. It tells us that God is holy and fully sufficient. And by sufficient, what I mean by that is he can and he will and he loves you. And there's no problem that you have or any difficulty that you face, any problem that you have, any difficulty that you face, any need that you have that he cannot meet or that he's not willing to be able to meet according to his goodwill for your 
plan. He is faithful and he is all powerful and he is ever present and you can count on him. Got, got that? That's, it's, 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 the, it's the sufficiency of God, what this whole thing is about. And we're going to want to look at three truths concerning that sufficiency as we work through this story in the first part of this chapter. First thing we want to see is this. First of all, that God is sufficient and man is not. Would you agree with that statement? God is sufficient. He can do anything. Man cannot do everything. Would we agree with that? Now notice, first of all, in the very first verse, this is what it says. It says, after the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? Now, I don't want you to just skip over that very first phrase. That first phrase is important because it's actually almost identical to the first phrase that we found in the book of Joshua. In Joshua, the very first phrase is this. It says, after the death of Moses, now Judges begins, same exact wording except for a different name, after the death of Joshua. Why is that significant? In both books, what it's telling us is that there is an immediate sense of instability that the Israelites are experiencing when this book opens. Whenever we lose a leader, especially a great leader like Joshua, you you can't fill that void very easily. You got that? All those that are following a strong leader, when that leader goes away, no matter matter if if he passes away or he's taken away, whatever it is, there's always a void that is left behind. Would you agree? If it's a, if it's a nation, they lose their president. Even if they really didn't like them, there's a void that's, that's there. There's insecurity within the nation, in, within the economy. It's true when we talk about uh, companies and a CEO leaves. Uh, there's instability there. There's uncertainty. Uh, again, with, with the home same exact thing, or with a church. If a pastor leaves a church, there's always this kind of, hey, what's gonna happen? We, we don't know what the future is really kind of holding. So you guys get that. Here is a great leader. He's gone. So we find the whole nation of Israel in a place of uncertainty and insecurity. So I, I wanna make sure that you see that. And so what, what, what's interesting is the people want to know who is going to lead from this point on. God's always been very clear about that. Before Moses died, he had actually appointed his successor, Joshua. But when Joshua died, he never appointed a successor. So the people feel a little bit lost. So they go to God and they ask him, who now is going to lead us? Who's going to lead the way? Who's going to lead us into the battle against our enemies? And God answers them. Isn't that neat that we have a God who answers prayer? What's interesting here, though, is we really don't know how God answers. Uh, it doesn't really tell us how he answers. There's, there's all different types of, of, of scholars that have said, well, the way that they probably went about seeking the will of God was through the high priest, uh, the Urim and the Thummim. You, you know, the whole Urim and Thummim. You use that all the time when you're trying to determine the will of God, right? The Urim and the Thummim, it's, it's the, for the high priest, he has, a, he has a breastplate that he would wear, and in it is a black stone and a white stone, the Urim and the Thummim. And, and they would actually use those stones in some way to determine the will of God for the nation of Israel. And when you go back to Joshua, you see that it actually worked. Now, that's an encouragement. That's descriptive, not prescriptive for you and I, all right? Don't get your white and black stone and go, God, should I or should I not, and rattle them and throw them, all right? That's not what they're doing. So, but we're not sure how God answers, but we do know that he answers. And when he answers them, he's very clear about what he wants them to do. The scriptures tell us here in, in, in verse two, it says, and the Lord said, however he did, so Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. Got to kind of straighten something out real quick. So right now, God says, I've got a leader for you. It's Judah. But 
this is the mistake I don't want you to make. I don't want you to think that Judah is a man, okay? Even though it sounds like that. He's using a language, it's called personification. He's actually speaking about the tribe of Judah. Judah, the man, was one of the sons of Jacob, one of the 12 sons of Jacob. He's long gone. They're, they're long dead. But now he's using this personification, speaking as though he's a man, but he's speaking of the whole tribe. You got that? Okay. If not, then you'll get confused as we, as we track through. You're like, dude, that guy's got to be like 600 years old. How's, he, how's this working out? Okay. So, so, so we get that. So he's talking about the tribe that is ultimately going up. Now, what I want you to see is, is that God is the one who chooses the next leader However, it is God alone who will secure the future in their victory. Okay, get that. The victory of their nation is not dependent on the next leader, how good he is or how bad he is, or, or even if he's using a person or whether he's using a whole tribe to lead. He, what God wants them to know is their their, their, their success, their blessing, uh, their, the will of God for their life is not hinged upon a man, but hinges upon God and God alone. You, you guys track it with me? So this whole plan that God has to give him this land, to make him his, his unique people, guess whose plan that was? No leaders. It was God's plan. All right, and, and so it was his promise all the way back. He began with God's promise all the way to Abraham, promised to give him the land. His plan, he showed them in the book of Joshua, now in verses one and two, how they were to go about receiving the land. And it's more than just the promise and the plan. We also see that it's God's power that he ultimately gives them uh, in, in the scriptures. It, it, it's, it's, it's pretty clear to me, it, it says this, in verse, uh, excuse me, in verse four, it says, then Judah went up and notice this, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand and they defeated 10,000 of them at, at, at Bezek. Now notice verse 19 and, and we read, and that God provided his presence here. It says, and the Lord was with Judah and he took possession of the hill country. Now here's what I want you to see. God is all over this thing. His handprints are all over chapter one. They are scared. They are nervous because they begin to think like you and I that things are gonna go down very quickly because our great and strong leader is no longer there. We need a great, strong leader. God's sitting there and says, you have a great and powerful leader. It's me. I'm your leader. I'm sufficient. Not somebody else is ultimately leading you. So let me give you a couple points of application. That, that, that one particular truth, let me hash that out a little bit for us. First of all, I think it serves as a caution to you and I, just like it did for them. It's a caution for you and I not to make the mistake of placing too much faith in any other individual. You guys got that? Listen, election time coming up. Aren't you excited? Everyone's always excited because everyone ever loves their cotton-picking mind whenever election time comes in, Right? What do they do? Some people, oh, we're so excited. We didn't like the last guy. Some people are like, oh, we're so sad. But yeah, it's, it's something new. It's something fresh. Uh, who is this person that's gonna come? And the hope is always that the next guy is gonna do it better, right? Rather Republican, Democrat, whatever it is, there's always this hope. Maybe this guy will change things around. Maybe this guy will make it better. Maybe this guy will help my 401k. Maybe this guy will give me more stability in my home. Maybe this guy will give me more breaks, whatever it is. And you're all excited about this guy to come and to solve all the problems of the nation. He comes, and if you put your faith completely in him, guess what? You're gonna be really, really disappointed. You with me? You're gonna be really, are you sure you're with me? All right, you'll be really disappointed. Same exact thing as a spouse. You see people getting married all the time, right? And, 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 and I just got to tell them, they're sitting there and go, why, why do you want to get married? Well, because he makes me happy. 
I'm happier with him than with anybody else. I'm like, you can't get married. You've got to find another reason than that. That's, that's not going to bode well with you. What, what do you mean? That's so unromantic. How could you say that? I go, go talk to a married person. Just go talk to them. They, too, were just like you. Woo, so wonderful and everything. And now they're just like, whatever, you know, that kind of thing. And I said, I'm not trying to be crude, but if you think that all of your happiness is dependent upon this fallen, sinful-hearted, self-centered individual, you are setting yourself up for great disappointment, right? So what is it telling us? Here's a caution. Don't place your hope, don't place your joy in anyone else except for the God who is all-sufficient. Got it? Caution. Let me give you a second one. I, I think the second one is good. It also gives us comfort. My wife and I were out on a date night, and if you have 100 kids, you know how wonderful these things are. And... Um, and, you know, we, were, we, we went out on the date night, and I don't know, when my wife and I finally get alone, it's weird. We start talking about very strange things, I guess because we just normally don't have time to bring stuff up. And so we're kind of talking about this, and for some reason I started thinking, I think I heard something on, uh, on news that, that somebody lost their wife, and, and I was sitting there going, you know what, I don't even know what I'd do if I lost you. If something happened to you, I go, have you ever thought about that? I go, honestly, my mind is completely blown. I don't know what in the world I would do. Have you, have you ever thought about what, honey, what would you do if, if, if I died, if, if something happened to me and God, God took me home? Well, she all but took out a list. She began to give me, well, I'd do this and I'd do that and I'd do this and then I'd take care of this and then this I would take to go cover this and I'd pay off the house and then I'd probably sit there and I'd probably do this. I mean, like a list of like 59 things and I'm like, whoa, I... I, don't, I, I can appreciate preparation, but I don't even know what to think about this. I mean, you're, you know everything you're going to do if I die. Why have you thought so much about this? And, and for me, for me, it, it just wasn't a great date night, just to be honest with you. And so I sat with my wife, and I, I mean, honestly, I sat there, and maybe, guys, you feel this way. I go, I don't, I know you got a plan. I don't have a plan. I don't, I don't know what I would do. How in the world would I raise five children without their mama? How in the world would we educate them? How would we continue to do what it is that we feel like God has called us to do inside of their lives? I go, I just, I could see myself, and I began to talk to her, I could see myself spiraling down to a point where I don't even know where to go. I don't even know where to turn. And it was interesting because then the next week, the next Monday, I began to study this passage. And you know what I would do? I would keep going because my hopes and plans for my children and for myself are not placed in, in, in dependent upon my wife. They're dependent on an all-sufficient God. Are you with me? That, is, is that a comfort to you? It's a great comfort to me. Let, let me tell you one more thing that it does. I think it also convicts, also convicts. You know, we, we live in a world of, um, of people who have been hurt, right? And victims. I mean, we really have. And, and the truth is, all of us have been hurt by somebody. Would you, have you been hurt by somebody? Raise your hand, please. Those who are raising their hand are lying, all right? So uh, we'll just assume you're the person hurting everybody else, all right, if you didn't raise your hand. So, so we assume, and, and people are always like, you know, I've been hurt, I've been hurt. As a pastor, I hear a great deal. You can imagine, hear a great deal of that. And one of the things that really concerns me is how oftentimes people will come and they will say things like, well, the person that really hurt me the most was a pastor. I got an email from somebody that I hadn't seen in like eight years, and they wrote me and they said, this is how basically you destroyed my life. And... So thank you. I don't know. God bless you. Forgive me. I don't know what to do um, you know, with that. But, but, but what happens is people come and say, well, I've been out of church for so long uh, because I was hurt at our last church. 
Okay, so there's a part of me, like, they're actually saying that as though they're the only ones that have ever been hurt by a church. Well, line up, baby. You know what I mean? That's what I, so I kind of want to say, not to be insensitive. And they're like, well, and the pastor just didn't, he hurt me. And I said, listen, I really want to warn you uh, about coming to our church. I, I probably do more for sending people away than drawing people. It's sad. Um, because what I basically told them is, I just said, listen, I can guarantee you I'm going to hurt you in some way. And it's not even going to be intentional. But you're going to come and there's going to be some desire or something that I don't end up doing right or something I don't say right. And you're going to be really, really ultimately disappointed. And this is what I always challenge them. I say, I know that you were probably hurt by that person or that church, but is it possible? Is it possible that the majority of your hurt is your own fault and not theirs? Because what you've done is the cardinal rule is you were not to place your ultimate faith and hope in anyone, but rather into God. That's what we need to do. So very clear picture here. What does he say, first of all? That God is sufficient and man is not. So guess where you need to place your faith? God. Number two, the sufficiency of God is experienced when his people are unified. So here's the deal. Let me, let me give you this in the transition, this illustration. Um, I think when you hear that and you hear about the sufficiency of God, you're like, you know what? He's all I need. He's all I need. And if you're like me in my experience, that kind of led me off almost on the deep end going too far. Because you could begin to think, well, if he's all I need, then what do I need these bunch of hoodlums for, all right? I don't need to be around anybody else. It's just God and God alone. God will never hurt you. This kind of happened to me just a little bit. And my wife is lovingly enough to be able to point it out. Um, she, she said to me, she said, uh, uh, when, when I was growing up, uh, kind of quick testimony, very quick, my mom left home. She was going through all kinds of problems. She was an alcoholic. She left me, my brother, my sister, and my dad. And when she left, man, it was hard. I mean, it was, you know, you hear people all the time, man, how can a mom leave their child, children? You're like, man, what's, what did I do, you know? And you begin to look at yourself and wondering what's all going wrong, and you realize, it, finally you realize it's not your fault, it's their sin that caused them to do it. But anyway, I was sitting there, my dad came to me, and he realized that I was pushing away from the family, from my brothers and sisters and my dad. And he came to me, and he says, son, he goes, you're nervous that we're going to hurt you as well, don't you? I said, yes, dad. And he says, he says, well, he goes, listen, son, he goes, there is one person who will never leave you nor forsake you or hurt you. And he began to teach me about the sufficiency of God. And so from a little kid, I just sat back and I said, that's it. I'm going to put all my hope and all my trust and all my future in his hands and nobody else's. But here's the difficulty. The difficulty is you can go so far with that that you go too far. My wife will tell you that I used to be kind of like a hermit. I would just go from job to job to ministry to ministry. And once I was done with that church, I never called anybody, talked to anybody, go back to visit anybody. People are like, whoa, you got relationships there. And I'm like, man, just go on. You don't depend on people. You just depend on God. Well, we know we're supposed to depend on God, but here's the problem. And it's seen in the second point. The sufficiency of God is experienced when his people are unified together. That's where we experience his greatest, his greatest sufficiency. Notice, if you will, in verse 3. It says, And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, he says, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted for you. So here's what they're doing. God gives them a command, go and fight. Judah obeys, and then he asks the tribe of Simeon to go with him. He says, listen, I'm going to submit myself to God. You join me. We'll, un we'll be unified underneath the submission of God, and we'll work together to do the will of God. Got that? That's what he's doing. A perfect place, unified together underneath the will of, uh, of God and the sovereignty of God. Notice what happens next in verse 4. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands. Did you notice, notice this? 
Whenever we see the power of God moving in the lives of the people in the book of Judges, you will see that it's almost always when they are unified together and they are unified underneath the submission of God's law and his commands and his will. Now notice in verse 17, now we see that Simeon now receives help from Judah in verse 17. And Judah went with Simeon, uh, his, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zapeth and devoted it to, construct, to destruction. So you have Judah and you have Simeon fighting again for the sake of, of Simeon, that tribe, to be able to get their land. But by whose power are they doing it? God's. Why? Because they're unified together underneath the submission of God. And then finally, we see it in verse 22. And the house of Joseph also went up against Bethel and the Lord was with them. I know I'm reiterating it a million times, but let me just say this again. When do they experience the, the, the sufficiency of God, of his presence and his power? When they come together, when they're unified together, when they're doing the work of the Lord together. Now, listen, um, I know you and I, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, more than anything, you want to experience the presence of God, don't you? I mean, if you're a believer, you want that, right? I mean, you were, we're aching for that. I mean, the whole, the whole creation is yearning for the presence of God, aren't we? I mean, you sit back and you're like, no, man, I'm not really, I'm not really craving that. Then get saved and then you will. I mean, that's just the bottom line. If you're saved and you're born again and the spirit of God is inside your life, you crave to be in the presence of God. Now, how do we normally do that? We seek the presence of God. And people say that. Have you ever gone through a long, dark, dry, desert period and you're like, I just want to taste him, man. I just want to experience him. I just want to know that he's there. Anybody been in that situation, right? And, and you're wanting him. And, and at the same time, we understand, look, it's not, about, it's not all about feelings. We understand that we go through dry periods. It's not about my faith isn't dependent on how I feel. We get all that. But man, at the heart of every true believer, we want to experience him. And the way I think our modern culture, church culture has done that is spruce up the worship music. Just spruce it up, man. All right, and so everybody's like, man, I just want to experience God. Well, how do you do that? Go to the church and have a really kicking band, all right? All right, we have a kicking band, but, but, but how do you have, you just get together, and if you get the lights just right, and we're not against the lights, we dim the lights. If you dim them just right, get the music just right, get the organ just right, or excuse me, the piano just right, organ would be really old school, but anyway, you get all that just right, then, then somehow we'll be able to create this atmosphere where we can really experience God. Don't you think that's kind of the modern thinking of people? You even, you even hear folks and worship leaders take, um, I, I think, a text out of scripture. One of the most common misquoted texts is this, Matthew chapter 18, verse 20. He says, for where two or more are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now, who loves to quote this verse is modern contemporary worship leaders. He said, they're going, hey, when two or more are gathered in his name, there he is in the midst of them. So let's raise him up. And he says, if we raise him up, we'll draw all men to me. So they're taking all these scriptures out of context, okay? This particular passage, Matthew 18, 20, when it says, for where there are two or more gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. When you go to Matthew 18 and actually read it, what you find is it's in the context of church discipline. Okay, so what we're saying is, what, what, what God is saying back in Matthew chapter 18 is, hey, listen, um, if somebody sins against you, go to them. And confront them with their sin. And what you're trying to do is get them to be restored and to repent and to get right with God. And if they don't, then take two or three and come to them and begin to talk with them and confront them with their sin. And if they don't listen to that, bring it before the church. And if they don't listen to that, treat them like an unbeliever. Oh yeah, by the way, FYI, where two or more are gathered, there I am in the midst of them. 
So it's really strange when I hear a worship leader quote that particular passage because I feel like they're like, hey, it's time to enact church discipline. Let's get excited about it. So it's very weird for me. But, but let me say this, but the principle in the verse itself and within the context is absolutely accurate. And, and let me explain this. What they're doing is they're doing something very hard. He's calling the church to do something very hard to enact church discipline but he's calling them to submit to his authority and to be unified by doing it. And when they're unified in the midst of doing the will of God, that which is very difficult, guess what? The power of God and the presence of God shows up. That's exactly what's happening with the text here. In the text, they're called to go to war. This is not basket weaving. This is to go to war. And yet it's at war when they're, when, they're, when they're taking their shields and their swords and they're slaughtering people and some of them are dying in the midst of that battle is when they experience the power and the presence and the sufficiency of God the most. This is crazy. Stop and let, let me say it this way. It's kind of like this. It's, when I look back on this and I begin to think of the times where I just felt the presence of God and felt the power of God in my life, the greatest, it was never in a worship service. In fact, it was never when any music at all was playing. Look, when we get in here and we want to worship the correct way, we're not trying to build up anybody into a state of worship or build up them to be in the presence of God. None of that. What we're just doing is expressing our love and our appreciation and the adoration and worship for God who deserves that God. You guys get that? So when, when I'm out, I'm, I'm sitting there going, look, I, I've emotionally sensed things, and I've felt God in a church service and in a worship service, but it's still not the greatest times that I've experienced him. The greatest times that I've ever experienced him is when I've been in a place that's been very, very, very difficult, very hard. As a pastor, there's been times that we've had to go and address me and elders and other godly men, and the church have to go and address people who are in blatant sin inside of the church. They claim to be believers in Christ, but they're living like unbelievers. And in love, we go to them to talk, to get them to be able to repent. And let me tell you something, it's hard. It is unbelievably hard, because I'm just like you. I like everybody to love me, all right? Not hate me. And you go and you're confronting sin, and you know nine times out of 10, this is not going to end well. And I wanna let you know, in the midst of that, with another brother and sister in Christ, as we're talking with that individual, it's at that moment that I experienced the greatest sense of his sufficiency, the greatest sense of power coursing through me, and the greatest sense of his presence with me. One of the times that I remember so clearly of experiencing the sufficiency of God again has been at a death of a friend. And it's kind of kept coming in and out of life and finally dead. And there we were sitting there over his dead body at the hospital talking with her across his chest and we're sitting there and we're surrounded here's here's death in front of us and i can tell you that at that moment i experienced the greatest essence of sufficiency of the present and power of god than almost anywhere else one more time we we went to ethiopia and we had secret church. We were in a place where we're, it was illegal really to gather together and be able to have a church. So we had to keep it very quiet. So Dan and I were there in a small, very small group of people and we were worshiping together and there was no music, at least no good music. Let me just put it that way. It was hot. The stench was overwhelming for the physical ailments of the people that we were meeting, meeting with. And there we are on a hard ground. It's dirty, it's hot, it's stinky. And right there, sufficiency of God here to come to continue to be able to share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you get that? Here's what they're doing. 
God is all sufficient. Do you want to experience his full sufficiency? You want to experience his power? You want to experience his presence? Then work out the will of God with the body of Christ to do for God as he's called us to do. That's how we do it. Man, what a great challenge for this year, right? What a great challenge for this year. Do you know what our purpose statement here is at Celebration that we tried to get everybody to understand and everybody know? We exist to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. We exist to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. That's what we're unified against. Can you imagine if more than 20, 30, or 40% of our church actually came in together and said, that's gonna be our passion, that's gonna be our mission, we're gonna be a part of that, and giving and going and teaching and sending, we're all gonna do it. Can you imagine the amount of power and the presence of God that we would experience here at Celebration? Amazing. Third thing, third thing. This is where it gets really com- uh, confusing. And I know you're thinking, it gets confusing? This has been confusing, but let me try to confuse you a little bit more if I can. Third point, concerning the sufficiency of God. The sufficiency of God is experienced in the everyday. Okay, so so follow my my train of thought. We, We have God who is sufficient over all things. God's sufficient, man is not. You with me? Say amen. All right, he's sufficient, man is not. We got We got that. We experience his sufficiency at the greatest level when we're with other believers unified in our submission to God doing the work of God. Got that? And what is the work of God? God's big plan, God's big redemptive plan for mankind. And now we're looking at this, is that the sufficiency of God is experienced in the everyday, important truth. Now, what we find is, and I read it before, is we have three what appear to be completely unrelated stories. You remember already, the only one you remember is the man that gets his thumbs and his, and his, and his, or his, his thumbs and his toes off, right? His big toes cut off. Remember that story? Because I heard you go, ugh. As soon as we read over it, I didn't hear any more uhs through the rest of the service, through the rest of the reading, so I figured you didn't listen to that. So let me give you these three stories. I'm going to work through them very, very quickly, and then what we're going to do is we're going to see if there's any kind of correlation between the three. Story number one, look, look at verse five. He says, and they found Adonai Zebek, and he goes, in, or, or Bezek, and, and Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and they caught him and they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. All right, all kinds of discussion. Why does this happen? Why do they lop his fingers off, his thumbs off, his big toes off? A lot of different ideas. Some would say immediately to humiliate, humiliate him. All right, it's hard to look cool with no thumbs. Okay, I mean, it just is. It's hard to walk, walk, walk cool without any kind of big toes, all right? Try it sometime. It's very difficult to be able to do. Uh, it could be that what's going on here is that they're afraid that he's gonna run away. He already did once. They were about to capture him. He ran away. They're like, hey, we're gonna show you. We're gonna take your toes off. Now try to run off, ha, right? And try to get a hitchhike. You can't do it without a thumb, right? So there's no way for him to be able to get out of town, Okay. So what else, is, what else is specifically going on? Well, let's let the man who had his thumbs and his toes cut off, let him give you the interpretation. We see it here in verse seven. And Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. And as I have done, so God has repaid me. So according to the man who had his thumbs and toes cut off, you know what the point of the story is? The justice of God. That you can do wrong and do wrong and do wrong, but there's one day that the day of judgment is going to come and God is the one who brings about that justice. That's the story, all right? Let's look at story number two. 
All right, see if you can see anything's related here. Story number two, beginning in verse 11. It says, from there, they went against the inhabitants of Deber, and the name of Deber was formerly Kareth Sefer. And Caleb said, here's Caleb. He says, he who attacks Karabeth Sefer and captures it, he goes, I will give him Aksah, my daughter, for a wife. Okay, so, you know, this is not a bad thing. This is actually a good thing. He goes, hey, man, you go and get that land. I'll give you my daughter, All right? Well, Othniel, uh, Othniel is basically like, dude, that's a, that's a, I, I got to take that deal. So what does he do? He goes and he takes over and he, and, he, and, he, and he takes the battle over. Verse 13, and Othniel, the son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Aksa, his daughter, for a wife. And when she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for the field. So, so let me tell you what happens from this point on just very quickly. She's already, she's already kind of bossing her husband around. They get married, and she sits there and goes, now you need to get a house. What are you going to do about it? All right. So she's even directing him. Now, understand, this is before we have Ephesians chapter 5 in biblical manhood and womanhood. So just understand, things are out of order. So she goes, descriptive, not prescriptive, okay? So she tells him, hey, listen, you need to go. You need to get us some land. That's what you need to do. All right, big man. You're big enough to take my hand? All right. Produce a place for us to live. Go ask my dad for it, all right? It would be nice if it was that easy. Uh, but he goes, supposedly, we don't, it didn't say specifically whether he does or not, but I got a feeling, man, he did ask, right, after being encouraged by his wife. And then she goes back to her father, and here's what she does. She requests for some kind of access, some springs that her, that her family can have some water at. So what's the point? What is she doing? She's basically nesting. She's getting her house in order, okay? She's got a piece of land. She's got married. Now she's got dreams of a house and kids, and she's just trying to prepare. All this is going on. Remember something. What's happening in the midst of this? War is happening in the midst of this. Broad picture, war. This guy is getting his toes cut off, his fingers cut off. He, he's, he's not being able to go anywhere. What's happening in the midst of it? War, okay? Now, third story. We get over here in verse 22. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel. You guys are doing great. And the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. He says, now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the, and the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. So here's the idea. They're trying to fulfill the will of God. They're doing what God has called them to do. And, and so they find themselves trying to take over a city, but they can't get in. They see a guy just walking down the street, and they're like, hey, dude, we'll make you a deal. We're going to get in there somehow. We're going to wipe them all out somehow. We'll make you a deal, though. You show us how to get in in an easier way. And we won't wipe you or your family out. And then later on, they, he actually, that guy actually is spared and he goes and he builds a city. So here, here's what you have. You have a story on one side of justice and a man's, you got Mr. Thumbs and Toes over here. Then you have the story, it's a love story, all in the midst of all of this war. Isn't it wonderful, a man winning the hand of his, of his loved one and then settling down in a peaceful countryside. And then at the end, you have this story of espionage, of people trying to sneak in and trying to overcome another place. What does any of these things have in common? Aren't you glad that you didn't have to preach this this week, right? Here's the idea. If we look at a text like this and we try to moralize it, and just say, here's a nice little lesson for you and I and each one and justice and do good things and don't be bad things, I think we miss the text. I think if we remind ourselves of what the text keeps being about, that it's about what the sufficiency of God, I think we get a hint of what's going on. Here's what I think God would say. I think what God is showing us through this writing and the original author is that yes, God is sufficient and cares about his great, big, massive plan to redeem mankind but he's also big enough, gracious enough, and wonderful enough, and sufficient enough 
to be able to meet your daily need. He cares for you. What do you have? You have a big war going on. Justice needs to be done. God meets that justice. Big story, big war, huge thing. This is, God, this, is, this is a huge part of God's redemptive plan. Do you guys get that? God's redemptive plan meaning that man, God created man, man blew it, and from Genesis to the book of Revelation, it's all about how he turns this thing back upside down and gets it right so that his people, his elected people, spend time with him for all eternity, from people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group. That's the big story. You understand that that's why we're here, right? We're here to be a part of that plan, to be a part of his big story. Where are you in it? Are you going? Are you sending? Are you giving? Are you teaching? What are you doing in this big part? And what we see in this picture, this is so exciting to me. What we see in this picture is that God is sufficient to make it happen. They're in the promised land, and he's going to use these people to be a light to the lost and dying nations to bring them to faith to God. He's faithful. He's sustaining the big picture But in all of that, don't miss the thought that he's also sufficient to meet you exactly where you are in the troubles, where you are in your own individual life. He cares and he can do it. That's amazing to me. See, because we miss it sometimes. Listen, this is what we do. Sometimes we go through our whole life not thinking about the big plan at all. There are some of you, and this is what we keep trying to do at Celebration, there's some of you that sit sitting there and go, man, my whole life is about me getting a good job, getting a good wife, uh, you know, getting a good house, getting a good retirement, same thing, and you're missing the big picture. You're missing God's redemptive plan for mankind, and you're not even being a part of it. But when you're here long enough, and we begin to preach it long enough, then all of a sudden you sit there and go, there's more to this life than my life. It's about what God is ultimately doing. Y'all with me? That there's more to this life. It's bigger picture. But here's what I want you to understand. Sometimes you could become so focused on that big picture and you know that God's going to supply and God's going to meet those needs and somehow God's going to send enough people through our giving and people's faithful going that they'll reach the whole world with the gospel of every tribe, tongue, and nation and people group. He goes, but at the same exact time, guess what? God cares that my daughter's at home with pneumonia. Life goes on. It's all happening. It's all going on. It's like, it's like I, 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 I don't know what happened, but I know all of our insurances took a big hit this weekend because my kids, one of my, my, one of my little daughters has pneumonia. She's going to be fine. Thank you. I didn't tell the, the well, she's going to be fine. Lord willing, she'll be fine. And then I, I talked with Dan yesterday. He, he texted me and he goes, man, my son just slipped on his, on his skateboard, broke his hand. Man, his bone's completely right through. It's, it's bad, bad shape. I'm like, man, that is bad. Karen calls our, 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 you know, our, um, our children's director. She calls me up, and, and she basically says, hey, listen, I'm, I'm, you know, got some real physical painful things going on. She shared, I'm like, what in the world is going on, right? Jeff Orff, another buddy of mine, he's like, man, my, my daughter's really, really sick, man. We got to rush her to the hospital. And here's the idea. All of those bad things, crazy things are going on, and if I were to have all you stand up, every single one of you would have a story. Hey, I could top that, buddy. Let me tell you, we've all gone through pneumonia this week, right? And all of us would be standing up. And here's the amazing thing about me. Even though all of that is going on, God is still seeking and saving people for his kingdom, for his glory. And at the same time, he's just as much sufficient to meet you exactly where you are in your regular everyday life and to be able to meet every need you have. That's stinking awesome, right? That's amazing. God's amazing. And you sit there and some of you are going to sit and go, yeah, but is he willing it to do for you? How can you question that? It's not just that he's able, it's that he's willing. I'm not saying that every person is always going to get healed, but the ones that he doesn't heal, he will sustain. And he will take care of and he will get through and he will carry through. 
And you say, how do I know that he's willing to be able to do it? Because God in his love sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to die. If Jesus Christ was willing to step out of heaven to this dump and give his life and be born of a baby, which is immensely humiliating for the God that created all things, and be born in a stable, and then live all that period of time with people mocking you and telling you you're no good, and then end up on a cross and die on a cross to give your life for the very ones who are killing you, guess what? He went all the way there. He did it all there. Why would he not continue now as you, as a child of God, to continue to be sufficient for you and love you and grant you his power and his presence to to nurture you and to take care of you? He would. For some of you, that's just not a reality. For some of you, salvation is not a reality. For some of you, you think you're fine. You think everything is okay. You would claim to be a believer in Jesus Christ, but there's no pursuit of God. There's no hunger for God. There's no hunger for the things of God. And when I would call you desperately to repent and believe in him, turn from your sin, recognize who you are, place your faith completely in him, not anybody else, but in the completed work of Christ that he died for you and you do that, your life will change. He'll change you. Your heart will be saved, and you'll live for him forever. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you, and we thank you, and we praise you. God, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for your sufficiency. May we be overwhelmed and blown away by how good and how great you are. God, forgive us for placing our faith anywhere else but you. God, restore our souls. Restore our faith in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand, let's stand. And we're gonna sing, let's just sing together and respond. I'll be down here if you wanna pray or you wanna talk. You want it, the altars are open if there's something that you wanna just come before the Lord with, but just respond and do business with him as we sing. Sing it is enough.